Would you turn with me, please, to the third chapter of Second Timothy? Second Timothy, chapter three. Paul's concern, as you know, throughout this chapter is with uh, what he calls the last days, these hard days in which we in which we live, when there's so much uh, heartache and hurt and so much loneliness. These last days, as we learned last week, are not some far-off period, yet future to ours, but the present days, the days in which we live. And uh, Paul describes them as difficult and dangerous because of the character of men. The problem, as Paul points out, is that men and women are centered upon themselves rather than God, and that's why they, they make these days so hard. As Mamie Yoakum says, goodness is better than badness because it's nicer. The problem with badness is that it isn't nice. It makes things hard for people. Goodness is much nicer. T.S. Eliot put it well when he said, In all of our learning, we come only to our ignorance. In all of our ignorance, we're led only to our deaths. Where is the life we have lost in living? And that's the question I'm sure we're all asking. Where is the life that we're missing? Something has gone wrong with the world. What can we do to bring help and redemption to our world? Well, it's this that Paul is concerned about. And he tells us that there are two things we can do to be redemptive in our world. The first thing is to follow the right kind of people. The second is to read the right kind of books. Let's begin uh, with his uh, with his first uh, uh, the first element that he mentions, beginning with verse ten. You, he says, Timothy, followed. You have followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions, suffering, such as happened to me at Antioch, at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra. What? persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord delivered me. And, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them. You followed, Timothy, in the past, the pattern that I established for you. Now continue to follow that pattern. Paul can say uh, uh, without embarrassment, follow me, Timothy. Follow the pattern that I'm setting for you. There's no question that our friends influence us and the sort of people we pick out to pattern our lives after uh, influence us profoundly. One of the really sad things I think about, an, uh, about our era is that there are so few heroes, so few real heroes that we can follow, and so few heroes for our uh, young men and, and young women. The heroes we have are, are celluloid heroes. They aren't real. Uh, I was talking to a young man a few weeks ago, and he told me that uh, Sylvester Stallone was his hero, and uh, he was his example of, of courage and manhood. Uh, It struck me as it often strikes me when people say that sort of thing that I really can't think of anything courageous that Sylvester Stallone has actually done. He may have done a number of of very uh, uh, brave things, 
uh, and I'm sure he has. But what this young man, young man meant is that he patterned his life after Rambo and Rocky. And they're make-up characters. They're make-believe characters. They don't really exist. And my question is, where are the real, live, honest-to-goodness heroes in our age that we can follow? Well, Paul very unabashedly says to Timothy, I'm one. Follow me as I'm a follower of Christ. And what Paul does in this section is give us what I think are the elements that we ought to look for and emulate in another person's life. There are a number of these elements. He, he says in verse 10, First of all, you followed my teaching. Uh, we ought to follow the example of, of people who will teach us things that are worthwhile. People who know the truth, who know God and love him, and who understand his word and can tell us what they know about God. People who listen to God first and understand him to the extent that, they, that they're able, and they impart that understanding to us. Isaiah says, for example, that he's an example of a teacher. He says, I'm one who is able to counsel those that are weary of, of heart and to give comfort and encouragement to them. The Lord has wakened me. He wakens me morning by morning. He opens my ear to hear as a learner, he says. That's, that's where he, he came by the counsel that he passes on. He listened to God every morning. He was a man of the word. God taught him, he turned around and taught uh, his disciples. Now, that's the kind of person we need to listen to. We can learn truth from people that are not believers. There's truth everywhere in the world. But we should never ultimately follow anyone who doesn't first listen to God. We want to be taught by people who are taught of God, as Timothy was taught by Paul. Now, the second element that uh, we ought to look at is their conduct, because a person's life ought to be consonant with their teaching. One of the saddest things said in the Gospels, I think, with, with regard to the Pharisees, was Jesus' word to his apostles when he said, Watch out for the Pharisees. Be wary of the Pharisees. Insofar as they represent what Moses said, listen to them, because they sit in the seat of Moses. In other words, they have authority when they teach the Old Testament. And insofar as they teach it accurately, listen to them. Don't do what they do, he says. Don't practice what they practice. Because they say certain things, but they do not do them. Now, we shouldn't follow the practice of people that, whose, whose lives and whose behavior is not, is not uh, consonant with, with uh, Scripture. We'll never find someone that's perfect. We'll be like the person who spent his entire life looking for a heart of gold, and, and now he's getting old. We'll never find someone who is... Pure gold through and through, but, but look for people whose lives are consistent with what they, what they say. The third thing, that, the third element that uh, Paul draws our attention to is, is purpose. Not only should we take a look at their lifestyle, but their mind style, if we can put it that way. Their mindset. What, what are they living for? What is their ultimate purpose? What is the purpose in their life for which all other purposes exist? Paul said, my purpose is to know him, to know God, and to love him. See, are they centered on God? Do they want to serve him? Do they want to walk with him? Regardless of what else they do, we want to follow people who are single-minded, who, as Jesus put it, have a, have a single eye instead of a dual eye, an evil eye. They don't have one eye on one thing and one eye on God. 
They want to follow God with all of their heart and all of their soul and all of their strength. Carolyn and I had a conversation this, just this last week with some friends of ours. This man is in a, has a very difficult job. He's under a lot of pressure. And whenever I see him, I always ask him how he's doing. And uh, he said without too much uh, concern, he said, well, things are really tough. And, and I don't know if we're going to be able to do some of the things we'd like to do. And he said, I've got some hard decisions coming up next week. And then he just changed the subject abruptly. And he said, you know what I'm really looking for? He said, I, I'm looking for a man in this congregation that will hold me accountable. He said, I want to start meeting with someone who will meet with me and help me to be a man of God. He said, that's what I really want. And the, the degree of intensity in his voice and his attitude changed completely. You, you sensed what that man's purpose was. He wanted to know God. That was more important to him. He was, uh, his occupation was less important than his preoccupation with God. And as we were driving home, Carolyn said, you know, that man's vocation is part of his life, but it's not the heart of his life. And I thought, that's exactly true. And Paul says that's the kind of people that we need to pick out as examples. Men and women who want to live out their lives for God. Uh, the fourth element that Paul alludes to here is faith. Dependence. These are dependent men and women. Reliant men and women. They, they count on God for their strength. Now most of us from the time we were... Uh, Small children were taught that you shouldn't be dependent. You ought to be independent. You ought to stand on your own two feet. Be your own man. Be your own woman. But unfortunately, we're just not made that way. That's not the way God put us together. We, we are intended to be dependent beings, filled and flooded with God. We cannot be men apart from God. We cannot be women apart from God, you see. I've uh, uh, been reading J.I. Packer's and Tom Howard's book on Christianity, the True Humanism, and I picked up a very interesting and helpful statement uh, here. He says, It may be objected that the call to cultivate trust, obedience, and adoration as the fitting response to the love, sovereignty, and holiness which God has made known to us is childish. One would anticipate that in eras of such faith, called superstition by some, uh, these eras might be expected to produce mortals who creep about, fawning, groveling, hiding, dithering, running scared, and generally living mean and cheapened lives. But the paradoxical pr truth which shows up not only in Israel but also in Christianity and in all of human history is that the noblest notions and celebrations of human dignity come from those ages most Conscious of faith. Uh, it, it takes God to make us what we as men and women were intended to be. And so we ought to look for men and women who are men and women of faith. That attitude rubs off. We begin to pick up their trust and reliance upon, uh, upon Christ. Now there's another element here, that of, of patience. These are long-tempered people, literally. People that aren't, don't have a short fuse, that don't blow sky high. People that are tolerant, gentle, gracious, and patient with others. People who are loving, Paul says. You followed my love the way I loved you, the way I loved others. Love, as we saw last week, is essentially being selfless. 
It's thinking of others instead of yourself. Instead of focusing on your own uh, dress and your own vehicles and your own uh, homes and your own vocations, you, you think about other people and you're concerned about them. You center on others rather than centering upon yourself. You talk about uh, others and you talk to others about their needs rather than talking about yourself and telling your stories. That's, that's what love is. Paul says, follow people that are, that are loving. You, you learn to love by being around people like that. One of, one of my examples is a man named Wally Howard who led Carolyn to Christ some years ago when she was in high school or was at least responsible for her coming to Christ through young life. And I remember talking to Wally one time about a man that I had difficulty uh, liking, much less loving. And uh, I felt that there were a number of things that he was doing wrong, and I couldn't understand how, how Wally could accept him. He said something to me I've never forgotten. He said, David, when I stand before the Lord, I want it to be said of me that I love too many and that I love too few. I've never forgotten that. That's the kind of man I want to pattern my life after, someone who's generous and centers on others and is concerned about, about their needs. And all of this, Paul says, has to be worked out. Uh, well, I left out endurance, didn't I? Excuse me. Endurance. Uh, let's see, where am I? Verse 10. Patience, love, perseverance. Yeah, that's just that capacity to persevere doggedly despite, uh, despite adversity. To keep plugging away even when you don't feel like doing what God has, has called you to do. I just heard a few weeks ago about a, a 30th anniversary that uh, Peninsula Bible Church had for Ray Stedman. Ray was here, you'll remember, a few weeks ago, and, and he taught for us. And Ray has always been my example of steadiness and endurance. As I've always uh, said, the smart money always goes on the turtle. Uh, there are people that look good in the beginning. They have a lot of flash. They have a lot of personality. They, they have a great deal of force and, and power in their personalities. But uh, And that may be a good thing. But the real test of, of what a man or a woman has is his capacity to endure over the long haul, even when things are tough. And Ray has always been that sort of an example for me. I've always pictured him as a thousand-year-old oak planted out in a field somewhere. The winds can blow and the ground can shake and Ray is just unflappable, unmovable, always the same, constant. And uh, when they had this 30th anniversary for Ray, his daughter, who is in her late 20s, maybe early 30s now, stood up and said, well, I've had an opportunity to observe my father in all sorts of situations. And I would say that he is well-named. Of all the people I know, he's the steady man. And uh, that's, that's, what, that's what I want to be. And that's what we long for one another. We need to follow people who have that kind of persistence and dogged endurance despite the pain and, and the adversity of, of life. And then Paul says all of these things have to be worked out in the face of opposition. Persecution, sufferings, such as happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, what persecutions I endured. And out of them all the Lord delivered me. Uh, Paul was not delivered from persecution. He was delivered out of it, out of the midst of it. He was given the grace to endure it. And he mentions these three towns because 
he suffered in each of them, as Timothy would well know, because these were towns that were close to Paul's, uh, Timothy's hometown of Derby. Uh, Paul had been uh, run out of Antioch by the Jews. They, they pursued him on to Iconium, and uh, he had to flee under cover of darkness. And when he got to Lystra, they finally caught up to him, and they got him. They stoned him and left him for dead. After a bit, he got up, brushed himself off, and went back into town and began to preach again. But Timothy would have had an opportunity to observe the suffering that Paul had had experienced. And Paul says that's the name of the game. You can expect that to happen, even though you choose to follow me as I follow Christ. And even though these, these virtues characterize your life, you'll still be misunderstood. You'll still be persecuted. You can, you can expect it. And the reality of your life is demonstrated by your capacity to endure in the face of opposition like this. And in effect, he says, Timothy, I have suffered, and you will suffer too. That's why he goes on uh, in, uh, in verse 12 to say, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And as a matter of fact, things will get even worse. Evil men and impostors, charlatans, will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and and being deceived. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them. And as I pointed out last week, the whom is plural. Paul is referring to himself and the other apostles and the godly example that was set for Timothy by Lois and Eunice, his mother and his grandmother. Now, this is where we must begin. If we want to have a redemptive effect upon our times, we have to pattern our lives after the right people. But that's not enough. Paul says you have to read the right books as well. Because there will be a great deal of deceit in the world. Paul says that, there will, that men will, will tell you lies. And they'll even convince themselves, themselves of, the, of their lies. They're deceivers. And they're self-deceived. And this deceit will be widespread. Therefore, you need some basis to evaluate truth and the lie. What's true and what's not true? Well, in order to know what's true, Paul says, you've got to read the right books. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings, the scriptures, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Paul says you need to read the right books, and the books I have in mind are the 66 books that comprise the the Holy Scriptures. They are inspired of God. It's the only book in the world that's inspired of God. Other books are inspiring, but only the Bible is inspired of God. So you've got to take it serious. It's the book that goes along with man, as a friend of mine is fond of saying. It's the manual that goes with man. It's the way we understand what man is for. What he can do, what he shouldn't do, what's productive, what's destructive. How can we understand man apart from the manual? 
God created us, and he wrote the book that goes along with men. I bought a new uh, lawnmower the other day, marvelous machine. Uh, my, my old one rolled over and, and died. And uh, so I went down to Great Western and invested in a, in a new mower. And it is a, it's a nifty machine. It does things that my other mower could never do. And uh, usually you just buy a mower and crank it up and, and go out and mow the grass. But this mower came with a real thick manual. And I took that thing home, spread it on the table, and it told me what, what you could do with this machine and what all the gadgets were for, and how you adjusted it, and what you shouldn't do with the machine, and how you could maintain it to keep it useful for the longest period of time. And, and then it had a list of, of things you shouldn't do. Don't put your toe in that opening because it will get cut off and all sorts of useful information like that. Things to do with that with that mowing machine. That was the manual that went along with the mower. This is the book that goes along with man. It tells you how you live your life without wasting it, without destroying yourself or destroying your, your family. We misread this book sometimes. We think it's just a, a, a book of arbitrary rules and regulations that has nothing whatever to do with life. Totally irrelevant. But that's not true. This is a life that tells us how to live as men and women were intended to live. It is inspired of God, Paul says. Now, it used to trouble me that Christians would argue that the Bible is inspired simply because it claims to be. I thought that was reasoning in a circle. To some extent it is. That isn't the basis, the ultimate basis for our belief in Scripture. But it's the place to begin. Why would we argue that this book is inspired if it didn't claim to be? That's the place to start. I have a set of Peterson Bird books, and you know, suppose I were to pull one of those books out, and I look at the introduction, and it says, this book is all about birds. And I look at it, and I say, no, it isn't. It's a book about mammals. And I close it up, and I put it back. So, well, I'm not playing fair. At least I need, to, I need to take seriously the intent of the author and the statement of the author about his book and investigate it to see if it is indeed a bird book. Well, when God says, this is a book about life, and, and I wrote it, it's inspired, it's divinely inspired, then at least I'm, I'm on solid ground when I, when I start out by saying, this book claims to be inspired, therefore I need to take it seriously and see if that claim is so. Now, let me tell you why I take the Bible seriously. You may have other reasons, but, but this is why I, I believe that the Scriptures are to be taken as authoritative and absolute for us as believers. My reasons for believing that the Old Testament is inspired are different from the New Testament. I believe we ought to take the Old Testament seriously because Jesus and the apostles did. Our Lord is the authority for life, and I don't have any right to second-guess him. What he says about the Old Testament is binding upon me. Otherwise, he's not Lord of my life. I can't challenge his authority in that area. And Jesus was very clear, and the apostles were very clear. Now, let me give you some examples. Jesus subjected himself to the Old Testament in terms of his ministry. His entire ministry was based upon what the Old Testament scriptures did. Very often you find that phrase, the scriptures have to be fulfilled. And Jesus was talking about his ministry. I have to do thus and so in order that the scriptures may be fulfilled. He was thinking Old Testament. 
The Old Testament said, I must do this, I must do it in my ministry. As an example, there's the time where Peter, you know, took the wild swing at Malchus and Malthus and tried to uh, part his uh, hair right down the middle with his sword. And Jesus said, wait, wait, stop, put your sword away. For otherwise, how can the scriptures be fulfilled? He knew he had to go to his death. The Old Testament predicted that. And therefore, he was correcting Peter and his own ministry on the basis of the Old Testament scriptures. Doesn't challenge the Old Testament. Doesn't argue with the Old Testament. He accepts it as his authority for life. Secondly, Jesus used the scriptures in his controversies with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and and others that he was engaged with. Uh, As a case in point, there is his debate with the Sadducees over the matter of the resurrection. The Sadducees were the religious liberals of their day. They did not believe in supernatural phenomena. They did not believe in the resurrection of the body. And that often threw them into conflict with Jesus. He was talking to him one day about this issue. And he said, you know the problem with you fellas? You don't understand the Bible. He said this to the probably the best uh, thought-out group of theologians of, of that day. You don't understand the Bible. Don't you men ever read the Bible? He said. Didn't you read what God said to Moses? And, and then he cites a text from... Uh, from Exodus 3, where God says to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses lived at least 300 years after the death of uh, Jacob. And yet when God spoke to Moses, he said, Not I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then Jesus makes the point. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. You see what he's doing? Jesus is making a point. On a Hebrew verb tense. As a matter of fact, the verb doesn't even occur in, in that text. It's a, what, what grammarians call a nominal clause, which is the best way to, to get across the idea of some ongoing action. And Jesus makes a point on a very subtle grammatical, uh, uh, a very subtle grammatical point based on the text. See, he didn't argue with the scriptures. He took them very seriously, right down to verb tenses. So... He believed in the authority of the scriptures and used it in his controversies with with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And then thirdly, in his own personal life, he took the scriptures seriously. Case in point, there's a story of the temptations, which you're all familiar with. Jesus spent a period of time fasting in in the wilderness. The devil uh, tempted him to, to turn stones into bread. Jesus quotes a passage from Deuteronomy 18 to the effect that man should not live by bread alone, but by every word that issues from the mouth of God. The point that he's making is that the Old Testament teaches that spiritual things take priority over physical things, and I won't short-circuit the process. I'll stick to the task that God has given to me, even though it means hunger. And what he was doing was quoting the Old Testament and submitting to it. You see? He wasn't quoting Scripture at the devil. He was quoting Scripture to himself. And he was saying, Satan, the Old Testament says this, I will not disobey the Old Testament. And then, uh, as you know, uh, Satan quotes him, himself quotes Scripture, a section from Psalm 91. He says, well, you know, if you want to quote Scripture, I quote some Scripture. God says, cast yourself uh, off. You know, if you cast yourself off of the parapet of the temple, the psalmist guarantees that God will send his angels to take care of you lest you dash your feet, you know, your, your foot upon a stone. Jesus said, that's true. But there's another Old Testament passage, and he quotes a passage from Deuteronomy 6, 
You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Now, many people think that what Jesus is saying is, I'm God, don't tempt me. But he's not quoting Scripture to Satan. He's quoting Scripture to himself. He's saying it is not right to make God jump through hoops. He's not a trained lion. I can't set up a, a series of hurdles for God to jump over and say, I'll trust you if you do that. can't do that to God. So I'm not going to do something foolish like leaping off of this temple just to demonstrate that you're God. That's contrary to the Old Testament. The Old Testament says you shall not tempt the Lord your God. I will not tempt the Lord my God, you see. And then, as you know, Satan offered him all the kingdoms, and Jesus said, no, no, you're supposed to worship God and, and God alone. In each case, he puts himself under the authority of the Scriptures, and he says, I won't disobey them. So in his ministry, uh, in his, his arguments with the Pharisees and others, and in his personal life, he submitted to the Old Testament, never argued with it, never contradicted it. He submitted to it. And then there's some very plain, uh, straightforward statements about the Old Testament. In Matthew 5, Jesus said, Not one jot or tittle of the Old Testament will be removed until all is fulfilled. The jot is the Hebrew yod. It's the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet, the little Y sound. Almost indetectable sometimes in the text. And the, the tittle was a, a projection on the Hebrew D to distinguish it from the Hebrew R, the race sound. Just a little mark like that. And what Jesus is saying is that you know, if you get right down to it, the words, the words themselves are significant and inspired. And it's not, nothing will pass away from this law until it's all fulfilled. Now that's Jesus' view of Scripture. And the apostles have precisely the same view. When you read their writings, they govern their own ministries by them. They govern their personal life by them. They use them in their controversies with those that uh, they're ministering to and working with. So both Jesus and the apostles see the Old Testament as inspired of God, authoritative, and absolute. Therefore, I can have no other view of the Old Testament than my Lord and his apostles. Now that's why I believe in the Old Testament. I believe in the New Testament for a different reason. Jesus was a prophet. He fulfilled all the credentials of Deuteronomy 18. He was an Israelite. Paul says that one of the unique features of Israel is that through them came the oracles of God. He chose the Jewish nation uh, to be his vehicle for revelation to the rest of the world. So uh, Jesus was, a, was an Israelite. He received direct revelation. He said, whatever I hear, that's what I speak. Father spoke to him, and he spoke. And uh, uh, he predicted the future with 100% accuracy. Those were the three marks of a prophet in the Old Testament. Jesus bore those marks. And he passed on that authority to his apostles. To his apostles. In John 16, Jesus said to the eleven after Judas left, When he, the Spirit of truth, has come, uh, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak of himself, but he will show you things. From whatever he hears, that will he speak, and he will show you things to come. In other words, these apostles, who were all Israelites, would receive direct revelation by means of the Holy Spirit, and they would also begin to predict the future with 100% accuracy. And when you get to 1 Corinthians 2, Paul describes that whole process in, in precisely the same way. Uh, the, the people to whom Paul wrote, the book of 1 Corinthians, were, they were Greeks, and they were imbued with this idea that wisdom and power are what make a man effective. 
intellect and, and, and influence on others. Power of persuasion, power of personality. And Paul says, well, we don't really have that sort of effect on others, but we do speak wisdom. We do speak wisdom. Not the wisdom of this world. Because, he said, what eye has seen, or what eye has not seen, and what ear has not heard, neither has entered into the heart of man. God is prepared for those who love him. In other words, the information about God does not come through the senses. It doesn't come through what you see with your eye or hear with your ear. You can't find out about God by putting him under a telescope or in a test tube or running him through an oscilloscope or something like that. You can't know God that way. Eye has not seen and ear has not heard. Neither has entered into the heart of man. The heart for the ancients was the seat of reasoning. So that you don't find God by reason, by rational process, by sitting down and thinking hard. How do you find it out about God? Well, he, he gives it to those who love him. Well, how does that work? Paul goes on to tell us. Is the problem is that nobody knows what God is thinking about. No one knows the thoughts of God. And he uses a very homely illustration. He says, that's true of people, too. Colonel very often will ask me, what, what are you thinking about? You know, we've known each other for 28 years. And nevertheless, she still doesn't know what I'm thinking about sometimes. She can't know unless I tell her. And Paul says, that's true of God. How can we know the thoughts of God unless God tells us? Well, how does God get his thoughts to man? This is the process. This is the theory of knowledge that, that we Christians believe in. It's all spelled out in 1 Corinthians 2. Paul says that God has granted it to us by means of, of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit takes the thoughts in God's mind and he puts those thoughts in the minds of the apostles. And then the Holy Spirit takes those same concepts and he translates them into words. And those words are inspired. And then the Holy Spirit takes those words and applies those words to us. He enlightens our minds on the receiving end as we read the scriptures so we can understand them. So in each case, the Holy Spirit guides the process by which the thoughts of God are revealed to us. And Paul makes this incredible, titanic statement at the end. We have the mind of Christ. In other words, when you read this book, what you're reading is the mind of Christ. What, what God thinks about, you see. Now, the apostles were very self-conscious of their authority. Paul said, when you receive my writings, you did not receive them as the writings of men, but as they really are, the word of God that is at work among you. And Peter is talking about Paul in, in 2 Peter, and he says, you know that, you know how hard Paul is to understand? I, I have to laugh, because Peter is twice as hard to understand as Paul, at least in my mind. But uh, Peter says, you know how hard Paul is to understand? And the ignorant and the unstable twist his, his writings to their own destruction. As they do the other scriptures. And he uses the technical word in the New Testament for the Old Testament. In other words, what Peter is doing is equating Paul's writing with the Old Testament. And the early church knew that. When, when the apostles wrote, they accepted their writings as authoritative. Those that had apostolic sanction, they were written by an apostle, were received. Those that did not were not received. That's how our New Testament came to be put together. You ask, well, what about Luke? He wasn't an apostle. No, no. But he was, he was uh, Paul's right-hand man, and he wrote under the aegis of the apostle Paul. We know that from the early church. They accepted Luke's writing because he wrote under Paul's authority. Well, what about Mark? He wasn't an apostle. He wrote a gospel. Well, not really. Peter wrote that gospel. That's not 
widely known, but that's a fact. The early church gave the credit to Peter for writing that gospel. They called it Peter's gospel. Mark wrote it. He put the words down, but Peter was responsible for it. And Jude and James, who are the other writers in the New Testament, are called apostles in the uh, in the New Testament. Not a member of the original, not members of the original apostolic band, but nevertheless apostles. So when an apostle wrote, the early church recognized that these books were something special, and they collected them. And these were considered to be the inspired texts. They're our rule of faith and practice. We don't have any other. So for those two reasons, I accept the Bible. The Old Testament, because Jesus and the apostles did. The New Testament, because Jesus was a prophet and passed on his authority to others. Paul says, this book is inspired. It's God-breathed. It came from God. It's the only book. That, that, that that's true of. And it's the only book that adequately explains man. Now, that's what the Bible is, as Paul puts it. The Bible is inspired. What it's for follows. Paul says it's inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. The scriptures ought to be taught, Paul says. In other words, we need to uh, teach the, the basic themes, the great doctrines of the faith. We need to instruct people about God and his nature. We need to talk about the nature of Christ from the New Testament, who he is. Uh, we need to talk about the great redemptive facts of the gospel, the cross and, and the, the resurrection of Christ. We need to talk about his second coming. Those are the things that people need to be taught. But Paul says you don't start there. You don't stop there, rather. You start there. You move then into reproof. The word has the idea of, of being called on the carpet, having to answer for something. What the Bible does is is stop you in the messes that you've gotten yourself into. We all are inclined to act in ungodly ways, and, and we, we get our life all messed up, and the Bible reproves us. It says, hey, whoa, wait, stop what you're doing. This is why things are so destructive. This is why people don't like you. This is why your marriage is falling apart, you see. But the Bible doesn't stop there. It doesn't merely rebuke us. It corrects us. It tells us what to do to get out of the messes that we've gotten ourselves into. And then finally, it trains us in righteousness. It, it teaches us how to do what's right so we won't get in these messes in the first place. So it speaks very precisely to our needs. Therefore, we need to be taught the word. That's always where you begin. The Bible is a difficult book for many people. They read it, and they don't understand what's in the book. Sometimes they have the wrong translation. Sometimes they... Uh, they don't have the background historically or culturally to understand the Bible. It's an old book. The New Testament is 2,000 years old almost. The Old Testament is much, much older. It's a different culture, an Eastern culture, different history. Most of us don't know anything about the history of, of those periods in which the Bible was written. And so that we don't. sometimes we don't understand what's in this book. The place to begin is to be taught. Put yourself in a situation where you can receive instruction from the scriptures. Get into a, a small group study or get into a growth group or one of the women's studies or 
a study somewhere where someone who's a little more knowledgeable than you can, can start telling you what's, what's in this book. That's all right. Uh, what you have here is the raw materials, which someone may have to break down for you and put into some kind of order so you can understand it better. Start there, but that's not where the process ends. Start studying the Word on your own. Take advantage of some of the helps that are available. One of the most recent and one of the most helpful is the NIV Study Bible, which just uh, just appeared here within the last two or three weeks. It's a little expensive, $25 for a hardback uh, copy, but it's an investment because they, the, the uh, editors of that Study Bible have done a good job of helping you understand the background, the historical, linguistic, cultural background of, of the Scriptures. That's the second step. Start teaching yourself. Don't go through life dependent upon what other people tell you about the Word. Learn to be more independently dependent upon God uh, through His Word. Study it uh, on your own. And then the third thing to do is to start teaching others. Use the Scriptures to exhort and encourage and correct and, and help others. Train them in righteousness. That's not just the privilege of a few. That's the privilege of the many. Uh, it's, some of us were talking the other day about the incident when the law was given at Sinai and Israel was standing at the foot of Mount Sinai and uh, God wanted to speak to them and they were frightened. They said, uh, we, we don't want to hear from God. If, if God speaks to us directly, we'll die. That's just superstition. They wouldn't die. They, they, they would have to obey, and they might think they're going to die, but they didn't. They wouldn't have to die. God is not not that kind of God. But that's what they thought. So God said to Moses, that, it, "That's good. That's all right. You you stand between Israel and me, and I'll speak to you. And you are my prophet then to speak to them." God recognized where they were in their journey. They were taking their first steps in faith, and they needed someone to to stand between them. But but that wasn't intended uh, to, to continue throughout the rest of their, of their experience. Nor is it with you. You may begin by being taught. Then start teaching yourself. Then as you grow up and your senses uh, become exercised, as Hebrews puts it, to discern the difference between good and evil as you begin to acquire an understanding of the word, pass it on to others. And Paul says that when, when you get to that point, then you are what he calls a man of God who is adequate, equipped for every good work. You are comprehensively equipped, as J.B. Phillips puts it in his translation. You have everything you need to help people in this, in this world around us. You don't need anything more. I have a friend who... Uh, uh, that I occasionally go out into the desert with, and he has one of the uh, one of the finest desert vehicles I've ever seen. Great big winch on the front, and he has a metal box in the back, and he carries a come along and a long cable. And he usually has five pound uh, five gallons of water in the back, and he carries a full tank of gasoline, and he has a couple of extra tanks of of gas, and a couple of sleeping bags, and flares, and a CB, and and, you know, it, whatever happens out there, he's prepared. He's got shovels and picks and all kinds of things. He's ready for anything. 
He looks at me and he says, Roper, you go out there in your old beat-up Subaru with the bald tires. You're crazy. You're not ready. You should, you know, you're dangerous out there. I'm prepared, see. Well, now that's, that's what Paul is saying. We don't want to go out into the world uh, as it is without being prepared, without being ready. And what equips us for life is the Word, knowing it, living by it, believing it, absolutely, see. Making that our, our basis uh, for life. Now, let me give you an illustration of how this works, and then we're done. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, a man came to me and, and said, what, what do you do with a son that's in rebellion? And that's a very practical question. And I've read a number of books on that subject and struggled with it, as many of you have. And uh, it, it's a question that comes up over and over again. What, what, what do you do if you have a son or a daughter who's rebelling? How, how do you deal with a problem like that? We're sitting across the table from each other having a cup of coffee I, I said, well, I, that's a tough one. I, you know, I don't have any final answers to something like that. But uh, I, there's a passage that's helped me. And I took out a little New Testament, and I read through the story of the prodigal son. And I said, it seems to me that that's the best counsel that you could receive on how to deal with rebellion in your, in your family. Because that was the problem that the father faced. And the father there represents God. That's the way God handles rebellion. So what better source for learning how, how to handle a rebel, a rebel son? And uh, I pointed out that there are three things that you learn from that parable. The first is that the father really loved that son. He never stopped loving that, that boy, even when he was on the run. And I, and I said, I, th- I think that's where we got to start. You know, when, when a kid's rebelling, you, you you have to tell them that they're wrong. You, you have to correct them. And, and the situation always gets real tense. I'd say that, that along with that correction, what you have to do is just love them. Touch them a lot. You know, hug them. Write little love notes to them. Put them in his lunch bag and, and that sort of thing. And just, just remind them that, that, that they're really important to you and that, that you're for them, not against them. Because after a while, they begin to sense that you're an adversary and not a not a friend. So I just love him a lot because that's what the father did. And remember that the father just, just kept waiting for the son. So the, the second thing I would say is uh, let him go. Let him go. Give him up to God. That's some of the hardest uh, words you'll ever hear is father. Let him go. You can't stop him. There's nothing you can do. The father tried every way to stop the boy, but he was insistent on going, so he's, he's letting go. So we have to do that. Just hand him over to God. And then third, don't fur line the pig pen. Because the father didn't. He let him struggle. He let him suffer. And I'll tell you, if you're a father or mother that's going through it, that's the hardest part of all, is to let him stay out there in the far country and struggle and hurt. And, and you, just, you just want to bail him out. You want to send him money or you want to do something to help him. But, but the father didn't. But he kept waiting. Kept waiting for God to work on that son. Now let me tell you, that's wisdom. I, I've talked to men that are just utterly buffaloed about you know, their kids. And I've been that way. And, 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 and you have too. Well, there's wisdom right out of the word. And that's why I say the scriptures equip us for life. 
So I'd, I'd leave you with these two ideas. They're Paul's ideas. In, in view of the hardness of these times and the hurt and the pain around us, there are two things we need to do. If we're going to have any sort of influence upon our world at all, any redemptive influence, number one, we need to follow the right, the right patterns. We need to emulate the right examples. See? And then thirdly, we need, to, we need to read the right books. As uh, Aslan said about Eustace, the little boy in, in, uh, in C.S. Lewis's story, the, the voyage of the dawn treader who eventually turned into a dragon. Aslan said of him, the problem with Eustace is that he didn't know about dragons because he didn't read the right books. The world's full of dragons. And we may even turn into a dragon if we don't watch out. We've got to read the right books. And as Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 15, We've got to choose the right companions and follow the right examples. Paul says, evil companions corrupt good manners, make you immoral, make you unmannerly. Evil companions corrupt good manners. Awake to righteousness and sin not, for some have not the knowledge of God. And Paul says, with real sadness to that church, I speak this to your shame. May he never have to say that to us. Let's pray. Let's stand together as we pray. Father, the truth as we see it in your word is so vivid and so clear and so unmistakable. It, it, uh, it tells us again that, that you do not want us to live confused lives in this world. But you want us to know the truth and to live by it. Help us to know it, Father. Help us, help us to discipline ourselves, to set aside the time, to be taught the word and and to teach ourselves the scriptures, and then as mature men and women to use them to help others. Help us, Lord, because we're so weak and we're so inclined to give ourselves to other things that, are, that, that ultimately do not profit. But we thank you for this reminder. It's a good one. Brings us up short. Helps us to see how we can, can do something to help others in our world. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.